Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. This is Genesis chapter 6, starting to read at verse 9. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and was full of violence. God saw how corrupt the earth had become, for all the people on earth had corrupted their ways. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood, Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Make a roof for it and finish the ark to within 18 inches of the top. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle and upper decks. I am going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has the breath of life in it, everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground you will, will come to you to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. Take with you seven of every kind of clean animal, a male and its mate, and two of every kind of unclean animal, a male and its mate, and also seven of every kind of bird, male and female, to keep their various kinds alive throughout the earth. Seven days from now, I will send rain on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights, and I will wipe from the face of the earth every living creature I have made. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Thank you, Joe, for reading for us. Please keep your Bibles open at Genesis chapter 6. We'll be looking at that quite a bit over the next few minutes. And you may also find it helpful to have the handout that you were given uh, on your way in within iShot. Uh, that will give you um, a, uh, a, an idea of where we're going through the sermon. Uh, as we begin, let me lead us in a prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning for your help, for me, for us all, as we seek to understand your word. Please would you speak to us. Give us hearts that are eager to hear your voice and eyes able to behold your glory and goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, as Tim mentioned at the beginning of the service, this week we are beginning a new series called Stories for Big Boys and Girls. And I love this because it's, the idea is that over the coming weeks we're going to look at some of the great and famous children's Bible stories and we're going to ask, what are they really about? Uh, so you can look forward to hearing about Abraham and Isaac, David and Goliath, Daniel and, and the lion's den, all the classics, but the full unfiltered version And this morning, we're beginning with Noah and the ark. And we quickly realize from the reading that we've just heard that this isn't some cute story about Noah taking some animals on a boat trip. I remember a few years ago, a lady who was new to church saying her daughter had just been given one of these toy Noah's arks with all the little animals and they were playing with it together. And she said, it suddenly dawned on me, isn't it an awful story? And as soon as we look past the giraffes and the elephants and the smiling lions, we've got to see her point. God sent a flood and a lot of people died. Isn't this exactly the sort of biblical story that the new atheists have a field day with? So we do need to answer this question, why did God send the flood? And we're given the answer in Genesis chapter 6, where we see a portrait of two hearts. A portrait of two hearts. The first heart we see in this portrait is in chapter 6, verse 5. Take a look. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. Listen to that. Every inclination. Only evil. All the time. The world before the flood was in a terrible way. People had slid deeper and deeper into violence and murder. We read earlier in Genesis that people were boasting about how many people they had murdered. The most violent and famous were honoured. Humanity was in an appalling downward spiral. It was a tragedy. In chapter 1, God saw all that he had made and he said, it is very good. But now in chapter 6, verse 5, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become. What was once all light and life had turned to death and darkness. And God, because he's good and loves his creation, was heartbroken to see what it had become. This is the second heart we get a portrait of in these verses. Chapter six, verse six, have a look. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth and his heart was deeply troubled deeply troubled. Now that should be a relief to us. If someone can look at evil and be untroubled by it, a psychiatrist might diagnose that person as a psychopath, someone who sees nothing of good or evil in the world. So it should relieve us that God isn't like that. When he sees evil, it troubles him far more than it troubles you or I, because he's far more good and pure than we are. He's deeply troubled heartbroken, grieved. We might well be glad that we didn't live in those days. But here's the crunch for you and me. Just turn over to chapter 8, verse 21. This is now after the flood. And towards the end of verse 21, in chapter 8, you'll see it says, every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. So this wasn't only a problem before the flood, back in those days. Still today, the human heart is inclined to evil all the time. 
Now you might be thinking, whoa, 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 hang on there. If the human heart was still inclined to evil all the time, then surely the world today would be as evil as the world back then was. A couple of years ago, until a couple of years ago, my wife and I owned a little Nissan Micra. It was a nice little runaround car. It didn't make me feel like much of a man to be driving a Nissan Micra, but that wasn't my biggest complaint about it. My biggest complaint was when we got on the motorway. It was noisy, the seats weren't great, and most annoyingly of all, it kind of always pulled a little bit to the left, so you had to constantly be pulling down on the right of the wheel to keep it straight. There was one bit coming north on the M1 where that worked quite nicely. There was a a long stretch that just bent slightly to the left. So if my wife was asleep in the chair next to me, I could just take my hands off the wheel for a bit and we'd cruise around the corner. But if I had done that anywhere else on the journey, we would have been over the hard shoulder, up the embankment, and it would have ended up in a terrible crash. Our hearts incline to evil. And if it weren't for the gracious, restraining hand of God, keeping us on course, we'd all be much worse than we are. That's what's happened here in the early chapters of Genesis. Without the restraining hand of God, the world had plunged headlong into violence and murder and corruption. And as a Christian, when I see that, I shouldn't say, tut, 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 thank goodness I'm not as bad as that. Rather, I should think, there but for the grace of God go I. That's one reason the world today is not as evil as it was back then. And here's another. Because we're made in God's image, there is an extent to which we're capable of seeing the goodness of his commands and keeping some of his moral standards. So sometimes, maybe often, we do things that appear good. We love our neighbours, whatever it might be. But if we're going to get an accurate picture of what our hearts are really like, what matters is not so much what we do, but why we do it. If you followed me around for the week and looked at the things I spend my time doing, I think, I hope, that you would find some things you would describe as good. I try to be a good husband. I try to love my kids. I don't do it perfectly, but I try. Sometimes I do things for others. I show love and kindness. But what you wouldn't see, and what even I only see to an extent, is why I do those things. If I love and serve my wife and kids, but do it because I worship them, I'm doing evil because only God is to be worshipped. If I try to be a good friend or colleague or member of the church, but I do it because I long to hear those words from people of affirmation and appreciation telling me how valuable I am, I do evil because I'm seeking my own glory. I was made to bring glory to God. So when I do anything from a heart that isn't seeking his glory, I do evil. Even if the external deed itself is in line with God's will. Do you see how tricky and slippery our hearts can be? I can convince myself that my heart is good because I do things that conform with God's will but I only really understand the state of my heart when I stop asking, what do I do? And begin asking, why do I do it? When I do that honestly, I can begin to see that even my best deeds aren't really good at all. Now, I'll be honest with you, I found preparing this part of the sermon really hard. And you may be finding it hard to hear. I get that. 
This isn't a nice portrait to look at. But please hear this. We have to understand the state of our hearts because otherwise we'll think that God was evil for sending the flood. And he isn't evil. He wasn't. He's just far more troubled by evil than you and I because he's infinitely good and pure. It broke his heart to see what his world had become. Why did God send the flood? Not because he hates his creation, but because he loves it and wanted to make it right again. He wanted to rescue it from the death and darkness that it had become. So chapter six, verse seven. The Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But that's not the final word because there in verse eight is a teaser to get us to read on. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. As we go on, we find in Noah one who walked with God. Have a look at chapter six, verse nine. This is the account of Noah and his family. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. Now, let's be clear. Noah wasn't perfect, but he was better than most. Against a black backdrop, even something gray looks white. That's Noah. Not perfectly righteous, but comparatively righteous, but still a human with a sinful human heart. With that said, Noah did show phenomenal faith and obedience in this story in response to God's word to him. Look down at chapter 6, verse 13. So God said to Noah, I am going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. This is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Let's be clear, that is big. It's very big. It's it's the length of one and a half football fields. It's higher than a four-story building. I was amused to find out earlier this week that uh, there's a group in Kentucky, USA, who have constructed a full-scale replica of Noah's Ark. Where else would that have happened? It's now a tourist attraction. You can go. I looked it up. It's $40. Might have to factor in some travel expenses to that as well. They managed to build it in just a few years. But of course, they had all sorts of modern machinery and a large workforce. Imagine trying to build something like that without cranes or chainsaws or any kind of modern equipment. Where would you start? It would be an engineering nightmare. And how long do you think it would take? Working with the numbers that the Bible gives us, it took Noah somewhere between 50 and 100 years, probably the upper end of that. So for the best part of a century, Noah was building this boat. Try and get your head around that. Five, 10, 15, 20 years on, the ark would have still looked like a shell. 25, 30, 35, 40 years, still decades until completion. 45, 50 55, 60, still no sign of that flood, eh, Noah? The best part of a century building a boat. And why? Because Noah had faith in God's words to him. He was one who walked with God. And so have a look at verse 22. Noah did everything just as the Lord commanded. Those around him must have thought he was a fool, completely nuts, and I'm sure they told him so. But Noah trusted God and obeyed him because he was one who walked with God. 
Then came God's total judgment on the earth. God's judgment had been promised and re-promised, and now it comes. Chapter 7, verse 10. And after the seven days, the floodwaters came on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, on the 17th day of the second month, on that day, all the springs of the great deep burst forth, and the floodgates of the heavens were opened, and rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. After years and decades had passed, that long-promised day finally came. And as the rain began to patter and drum on the roof of the ark, Noah's faith and obedience, his years of labor, were vindicated. What yesterday looked like foolishness, today was shown to be wisdom. Noah had trusted in the Lord and his promise and was proved right to do so. Having been told in verse 18 that the waters rose, we're told in verse 19, they rose greatly on the earth and all the high mountains under the entire heavens were covered. And then verse 20, the waters rose and covered the mountains to a depth of more than 15 cubits. That's nearly seven meters. The point is this, as the waters rose, the people would have retreated to higher ground. But then they rose even further so that even someone standing on the top of a mountain would have had wet feet. And then they rose further again so that there really was no refuge from God's judgment, no no higher ground to which someone might retreat. There was no escape from God's total judgment on the earth. And so sure enough, chapter seven, verse 21 says, every living thing that moved on the land perished. Birds, livestock, wild animals, all the creatures that swarm over the earth and all mankind. Everything on dry land that had the breath of life in its nostrils died. Every living thing on the face of the earth was wiped out. People and animals and the creatures that move along the ground and the birds were wiped from the earth. Everything and everyone was gone, but for this exception, only Noah was left and those with him on the ark. The only ones to escape God's total judgment were those in the ark. Noah had been wise to trust in God's word because God remembers and rescues those who trust in him. At the heart and center of this story is the four words that begin chapter eight. But God remembered Noah. It comes literally at the turn of the tide. We saw how the waters rose, 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 and now chapter eight, verse one, He sent a wind over the earth and the waters receded. Verse three, the water receded. Verse five, the waters continued to recede. And what happened between the waters rising, rising, rising and receding, receding, receding? What caused the turn in the tide? Chapter eight, verse one, but God remembered Noah. God had made a promise to Noah in chapter six and God would remember it by rescuing him from the flood. God remembers and rescues those who trust in him. The next bit of the story is written a bit like a rerun of Genesis chapter one. God recreates the world. Then Noah gets off the ark and the first thing he does is to worship God by offering a sacrifice. And in response, God makes a solemn covenant promise to never flood the world again. You see, just as Noah had a promise from God, so do you and I. And as a sign of this promise, he gave a rainbow in the sky. Chapter 9, verse 14. 
Whenever I bring clouds over the earth and the rainbow appears in the clouds, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. Never again will the waters become a flood to destroy all life. When God remembered his covenant promise to Noah, he rescued him from the flood. And the rainbow is a reminder to you and me that God remembers his covenant promise to the whole earth and that we are living in a time when he is rescuing those who trust in him. Now, if someone read that quickly and slammed their Bible shut, they might think, great, we're all good then. God's recreated the world, a fresh start, a promise never to flood the world again. We're kind of back to Eden, aren't we? But look closely and we'll see this isn't a return to Eden. And here's why. There was a stowaway on the ark. The stowaway wasn't an extra animal that wasn't supposed to be there. It was invisible to the eye, but on board the ark, being carried from one world to the next, was the human heart, still caught in the serpent's lie. Look again at the end of chapter 8, verse 21. God promises mercy even though every inclination of the human heart is evil from childhood. You see, the world after the flood might not be so far gone into evil as the world before it was. But the root of the problem, the human heart, unchanged. The ark carried a disease from the old world and released it into the new. The sinful heart survived the flood. And because there was sin, there was also death. Noah and his family, they evaded death in the flood. But just like all those before them, they went on to die. The new world wasn't a return to Eden because sin and death continued. How then, how then could this new world be any better than the last? Well, good news. It is better because a fuller and final rescue has been planned. A rescue that would reach even as far as the human heart and even as deep as the grave. A greater rescue by a greater Noah. Today, human hearts are still inclined to evil. Because God is good, his heart is still deeply troubled by it. And so a future final judgment will come. The Bible's very clear about that. But now there's a greater rescue to match it. There was another one who walked with God. One who showed even greater faith and obedience than Noah. Faith and obedience that led him not to build an ark, but to walk up a hill, to a cross, and to die under the flood of God's judgment. That's obedience. And just as they scoffed and mocked at the sound of Noah striking nails into the wood of the ark, so at the foot of the cross they scoffed as nails and wood and the dying Jesus built a greater rescue. As Jesus bled and died on the cross, he made himself into a lifeboat sufficient to save all the world from sin and death. See the love of Jesus in this. While Noah built the ark to rescue himself and his family from the flood of God's judgment, when Jesus went to the cross, 
He surrendered himself to that flood to save his enemies. Jesus is our greater Noah. He threw himself into the cold waves of God's God's judgment to save us from them. That is love. It's what we sang about at the beginning of the service. See the price of our redemption. See the Father's plan unfold, bringing many sons to glory, grace unmeasured, love untold. And as I think of Noah standing at the open door of the ark, squinting against the light of that new world, I can't help, I just can't help but think of Jesus, who having passed through God's judgment, emerged from his tomb into the light of that spectacular resurrection morning emerging with a greater rescue for those who trust in him. Greater because if we receive Jesus's rescue, we don't just enter a new creation, we ourselves become a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, the old has gone, the new has come. If we trust in his rescue, he makes us new and clean, no longer bound to sin. If you're a Christian here this morning, love this Jesus, your greater Noah, who remembered and rescued you from the judgment you deserved. Let your heart ponder him and love him who loved you all the way to the cross. And remember that to walk with God and trust in his word is wise, even when others around you call it foolish. If you're a Christian here this morning, but sometimes you feel weak in your faith, remember that you aren't saved by the strength of your faith. I don't know how strong the faith was of Noah's family, his sons and daughters-in-law and his wife. The Bible doesn't tell us. But I do know this, they weren't saved by the strength of their faith. They were saved because they were on the boat. If you're trusting in Jesus, however weakly, you're on the boat. You're safe because God remembers and rescues those who trust in him. And if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, thank you for listening. Can I ask you, when you think of Jesus on his cross, what do you think of him? If you think he was a fool who died for no reason, I can understand why you'd think that. The cross does look foolish and weak. How can a man dying on the cross be supposed to save the world? But can I invite you to do a double take at Jesus and his cross? Is it really foolish? When I think of Jesus dying on the cross, I see God providing a great rescue, taking the judgment I deserve. To you, God's message this morning from Noah and the Ark is simple, I think. Becoming a Christian isn't hard work. You don't have to perform some huge act of faith. God isn't asking you to build a ark. He's telling you to get on the boat. He's prepared the rescue. And the door of the ark stands open. But now you need to go in. Let me lead us in a prayer. Father God, help each of us to trust in you and to find our rescue and our safety in Jesus.
now and always. Amen.